together. And let's look together at the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me share with you just a few of the headlines from uh, recent days concerning our brothers and sisters in Christ and other parts of the world. Uh, in the Far East, Chinese pastor Xiaohe Zhang sentenced to 12 years imprisonment. In the Middle East, the headline reads, Iraq Christians told to convert or face death. In Africa, pastor's family, sorry, pastor murdered in northeastern Nigeria. His family's whereabouts are unknown. In India, villages outlaw Christian practices. Headline from Florida, Atheistic materials declaring Christianity is abhorrent to be distributed in Florida public schools. These headlines are all over the place. They seem to be increasing in recent days. Stories of uh, Christianity under attack. Stories of Christians being persecuted, imprisoned, exiled, or killed. Mount Hermon, how do you respond to headlines like these, do they surprise you? They shouldn't surprise us, should they? Christians are promised persecution in the New Testament. And our God keeps His promises. Jesus told His disciples that they would suffer for His name's sake. The letters to the churches tell the early Christians that they should expect to see persecution. In the Gospels and in Revelation, we see that persecution will be a mark of the end of the age. Only when Jesus comes back to set things right will we stop reading headlines like these. But certainly the persecution of God's people is nothing new. In the Old Testament, we see spiritual principles being taught and illustrated through national Israel. Uh, Ancient national Israel was God's chosen nation, God's visible people on earth. And through God's relationship with ancient Israel, God gave us a visible picture of His relationship to His spiritual people the true Israel, all who are His by faith. And when we look at the story of ancient national Israel, what do we find? But that from the very beginning, they knew the suffering of persecution. From the very beginning, Israel knew what it was to be hated by other nations. In other words, we should not be surprised that God's people today are a persecuted people. God's people have always been persecuted people. So I want us to read about this. Let's look first in Exodus 1, verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10. And here's what we read. This is the Word of God. Now there arose a new king over Egypt 
who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now here's the situation as best as we understand it. Uh, We know that Joseph was a Hebrew from the land of Canaan. He was no Egyptian. But in the providence of God, Joseph came to hold the second highest position in the ancient world at his time. Joseph became Pharaoh's right-hand man. And because of Joseph, Israel was allowed to have freedom in the land of Egypt. In fact, the northeastern part of the kingdom, the land called Goshen, was given to the Israelites for them to dwell there. And the Hebrews were able to live in relative safety. In fact, they lived with prosperity under the protection of the Egyptian king. Now, many think that one of the reasons that this happened is that the Pharaoh that was in power during Joseph's time was one of the Hyksos. So everybody say Hyksa. Uh, In in Egyptian history, there were many different dynasties who ruled the nation of Egypt. Some of these dynasties, and especially the 15th dynasty, were families from outside of Egypt. The Hyksos were from Canaan. They came from Canaan. They conquered Egypt. They set up a dynasty and ruled over the Egyptians. And therefore, if the Pharaoh himself was from Canaan, you might see why he would be a little more inclined than other Pharaohs to set up a fellow Canaanite, a Hebrew from Canaan, as his right-hand man. Now, whether or not Joseph came to power under a Hyksa Pharaoh is up for debate. But if we are right about our timetable, and I think we are, there has been less than a century that has passed since the overthrow of the Hyksos and this new Pharaoh that we find reigning in Exodus 1. In other words, for many, many years, Egyptians had been under the rule of a Canaanite family. But that foreign royal family has now been overthrown and a true ethnically Egyptian dynasty has been set up. And we can presume that along with this change in government, a new wave of Egyptian pride and Egyptian patriotism arose among the people of Egypt. They were no longer ruled by a foreigner. They were ruled by one of their own. So think about what the Revolutionary War did for us in our country. We know how we overthrew foreign rule in order to be led by an American government and not a British government. And every to, even today, our history still affects us. It, it shapes our national identity and what we value as a, as a country. Uh, folks that visit America from other countries say all the time that America seems to have a patriotism that is kind of rare they, they see the flags on, on, uh, uh, out on people's houses and out in the, the car lots and, and all these flags. And they say, you, you Americans, you're so patriotic. You so love your country. And it's partly because our country was born in a revolution. 
Well, apparently, a similar thing happened in Egypt during the time that Israel was dwelling there. There was a revolution. Now, stick with me for a minute because I think you'll see that this little history lesson will help make sense of how Israel went from being welcomed guests in Egypt to slaves in Egypt. Many centuries before the time of Joseph, there were Semitic peoples like the Hebrews who were in Egypt. They were not there as honored guests. They were not there under the protection of the Pharaoh. These Hebrews were there as slaves. In fact, we have an ancient piece of papyrus called the Leiden Papyrus 348. It speaks of distributing grain to the Aparu, who are dragging stones to the great pylon. Now, what do you think the great pylon might be in Egypt? Most scholars think that this is a reference to Hebrews dragging stones to help build the pyramids. Well, by the time Joseph came to Egypt, the days of pyramid building were over. Joseph likely saw the Great Pyramids, already built, already finished, hundreds of years before his time. Israel and his sons came to Egypt not as slaves. They came to Egypt as foreigners welcomed by the king. And yet, even in Joseph's day, we saw tension between the Egyptians and Joseph's family. Do you remember in Genesis, when we were in chapter 43, we read of a dinner at Joseph's house. And we found Joseph eating dinner at a different table than the Egyptians. And we were told in Genesis 43 that the reason they ate at different tables was because the Egyptians found it an abomination to eat with a Hebrew. So the Egyptians found it an abomination to eat with a Hebrew. Then Joseph's family, his his father, his brothers, they were all shepherds by trade. That was their profession. They were shepherds. We're told in Genesis 46 that every shepherd was an abomination to the Egyptians. So even in Genesis, when we find Israel welcomed into Egypt and, and given Goshen under the protection of the Pharaoh, we're still reading of some tension between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Well, over time, that tension became outright hostility. Egypt rebelled against the tyranny of a Canaanite king, only to realize after they had gotten rid of their Canaanite king that here they were protecting a family of people that had come from Canaan. And so in their newfound wave of Egyptian patriotism and anti-foreigner sentiment, the Egyptians decided they could no longer play nice with the children of Israel. Um, Egyptian scholar and Old Testament scholar Doug Stewart puts it this way. He says, The Israelites were now foreigners in a country whose government hated foreigners, under a Pharaoh who was surely determined to prevent what he saw as the miseries of the past from returning and who would have had not the slightest sense of loyalty to any agreement that his Hyksos predecessors worked out with Joseph. In other words, all of the agreements that the pharaohs before had made with Israel were now off the table. A new dynasty had come into town and xenophobia seemed to be running strong. Do you know what xenophobia is? Xenophobia is the fear of outsiders. It's the fear of foreigners. Now, some might object that the Israelites had been in Egypt 
for 400 years by the time we get to Exodus 1. Can we really still call them foreigners if they've lived there for 400 years? I mean, think about how long most of us have lived in America. Can we really say that the Israelites were foreigners in Egypt if they'd been there 400 years? But the evidence we have suggests that the Israelites continue to speak their own language, that they continue to live in their own part of the kingdom, Goshen, away from the other Egyptians. They continue to be shepherds, despite the fact that Egyptians would never be shepherds. They continue to dress differently than the Egyptians. Israel became so numerous that they now flooded Goshen and they're beginning to spill over into other parts of the Egyptian kingdom. In fact, we will see later that the Israelites had their own set of elders, their own sort of local government that they answered to. The point is this. The Israelites maintained a way of life that far more resembled the people of Canaan than the people of Egypt. And so now, after the overthrow of a Canaanite dynasty, a new Egyptian pharaoh uses this to his advantage. And what we seem to have, beginning in verse 9, is a political strategy playing on the xenophobia of the Egyptians. Look at verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, look, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Mount Hermon, that is almost certainly an exaggeration. Yes, Israel had been growing rapidly. Yes, Israel is spilling over the land of Goshen. But by saying that they are too many and too mighty for all of the Egyptians, this Pharaoh is playing on the fears of the Egyptians. This is what we call fear-mongering. And we will see later that the Egyptians far outnumber the Israelites especially in military strength. If you take God out of this picture, Israel certainly was not too many or too mighty for Egypt. But this Pharaoh has a plan in mind. He has an agenda, and he speaks this way to his people in order to get what he wants. What does this Pharaoh, probably Pharaoh Moses III, I'm sorry, the second, what, what does he want? Verse 10 tells us the Pharaoh's plan. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Uh, Those words, deal shrewdly, are literally in the Hebrew, let us make ourselves wise in regards to them. In other words, in modern language, this Pharaoh speaks to the Egyptians and he says, we must now wise up to just how dangerous This group of Israelites in our kingdom really is. If we don't wise up now, it's going to be too late. And the Israelites are going to hurt us. And so this was a call for Egypt to stop treating Israel as their friends and to start treating Israel as their enemies. But what was this Pharaoh really afraid of? Israel was not threatening to fight Egypt. And despite the Pharaoh's words, Israel likely was not yet big enough to really be a real threat to Egypt. What was this Pharaoh's real motivation for commanding that the Israelites be enslaved? Well, we have a clue that comes much later in the Bible. Uh, We're not going to look there, but you can read it at home. 1 Chronicles chapter 7, where we learn that during these days, there were some Israelites that began to leave 
Egypt and to go back to Canaan. We, le- we learned that there were some sons of Ephraim who left the land of Goshen, went back to Canaan, and they began to build cities for themselves. They began to be governors of cities. They began to grow in power. In other words, the days of famine are long gone. Israel no longer needs to be in Egypt to survive. And most Israelites are beginning to realize that. And some are beginning to go back to Canaan. More than that, these men are going to Canaan and they're becoming powerful. They're becoming men who, they cannot rival Pharaoh in power, but they can cause trouble for him. They can be a nuisance to him. They can be an annoyance to him. These men were likely becoming minor threats to the Pharaoh and his plans. And so we have a hint now of what we're going to see much clearer later, which is that what this Pharaoh was really concerned about is this. He didn't want Israel to leave his kingdom. He was not worried about them fighting Egypt. He was not worried about them revolting against Egypt. He was worried about them not being under his thumb, no longer being a part of his workforce, providing resources for his kingdom. He wants Israel under his power, under his authority. And because they are growing more numerous than he would prefer, he will soon call for genocide against them. Now, Mount Hermon, what is the lesson for us in these three verses? Well, we could talk about how Pharaoh is using hate propaganda and fear-mongering in order to accomplish his political purposes. And we could certainly talk about how that kind of thing happens in our day and how we need to be discerning when it comes to the things that politicians say. But I think the bigger lesson here for us is one about xenophobia. There can hardly be a greater contrast between the way this Pharaoh is leading Egypt to treat foreigners and the way God commanded Israel to treat foreigners. Pharaoh is going to enslave these foreigners. He's going to make their lives bitter. He's going to give orders to kill all of their newborn sons as a form of population control. But when Israel becomes a nation and God gives Israel a law, How does God teach Israel to treat foreigners? Listen to Leviticus 19, 33-34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now I wonder, did you think treating people with equality was an American principle? Not first and foremost. Treating people with equality, that is treating all people, wherever they come from, with a common dignity and respect, this is a biblical principle. God tells Israel to love the foreigner the way you love yourself. We see this echoed again and again in God's laws for ancient Israel. And we see it taught as well to the New Testament church. We learn in the New Testament that all people everywhere are sinners and that all people everywhere need Jesus. And no matter where a person comes from or what he may look like, there is always more that unites us than divides us. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. We are all under the same curse We all need the same salvation. 
We all have similar types of struggles and we all need the same solution. And so Mount Hermon, let's take a moment and let's examine ourselves in this regard. How do you relate to foreigners? How do you relate to those in our country who may or may not be citizens and who come from a different national background than you? How do you relate to those who have come to our country from Mexico? Now, I wrote this sermon several weeks ago before any of this border stuff happened. So don't read any political anything into this. I had no idea that that was going to be going on when I preached this. But I do think there's some providence here. How do we relate to people who come among us from different ethnic and political and national backgrounds? When you're at Walmart or you're at Target and and you're around people and you hear them speaking a different language or you see them dressing a little differently than most Americans dress, do you immediately look upon them with disdain? Or do you love them as you love yourself? Would you be willing to go the extra mile to care for them? Do you remember how utterly different Your God is from you, and yet to what lengths He has gone to have a relationship with you. Do you seek out relationships with people who are different from you? This is important because the mission of the church is a global mission. But it's not mainly about geography. It's about people and people groups. The Great Commission says that we are to make disciples of all nations. And that word in the Greek isn't referring to places on a map. It's referring to ethnos, different groups of people. We are to make disciples of people from different backgrounds, languages, and cultures. And here's the reality. We don't have to leave North Carolina to encounter many, many different people groups that need the gospel. You don't even have to leave Rocky Mount. In our global society, and in our melting pot nation, a nation in which all of us go far enough back are immigrants, there are all kinds of people around us all the time. And so I think we need to check our hearts on this. God does not favor a certain background or a certain skin color. God's family is a multi-ethnic family. Do we share his heart, and is this evident in our lives? What does this mean practically? It means that a person's ethnicity or nationality should never be seen as a reason for us to look down on them or to treat them differently than we would treat anyone else. As our state and as our city becomes increasingly diverse, it should be more common for us to have people from different backgrounds in our church in our homes for dinner, and in our lives. Derogatory ethnic jokes and ethnic stereotypes have no place in the life of a Christian. We should not tell them. We should not listen to them. And as a church, we should pray for and have a special concern for foreigners that might come among us. And we should do all that we can to show them real love, real hospitality, and real care. Israel was going to be enslaved because of the xenophobia of the Egyptians. God called His people to do the opposite, 
to love the foreigner as you love yourself, to treat them, he said, even as you would treat the native. Now let's read verses 11 through 14. Verses 11 through 14. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Well, we see here the nature of Israel's work. As we mentioned earlier, the pyramids had already been finished by this time. What we find the Israelites being called to build were these store cities. These were garrison cities. These were military cities. Basically, they were forts. They were built near the borders of Egypt as places where troops could stay during times of war. More than that, these cities were being used to store grain that could be distributed to all of the troops fighting in that region. Brick by brick, these store cities for the Egyptian military were being built by these Israelite slaves. We also see here the difficulty of Israel's work. We were told that Israel was set under these taskmasters, under the authority of these men. We are told that the Israelites were oppressed. Uh, We have wall paintings that have been discovered in ancient Egypt that show the taskmasters with their whips in their hands, enforcing their commands upon their slaves. In verses 13 and 14, we have five different words or phrases used to express just how burdensome this work was. There's repetition here. The the, the writer is piling on word after word after word to say this wasn't just bad. This This was really bad. This was really, really bad what was happening. In the English, you you see the word ruthlessly. The Egyptians showed no regard for the welfare of their slaves. Notice also we're told that the hard work made their lives bitter. In other words, this didn't just affect the Israelites during their working hours. No, their very lives were made bitter by this work. Think of what building these cities entailed. It meant that these Israelite men who had been caring for their families and living peaceably as shepherds were suddenly captured and enslaved. Likely the men were taken away from their families. They were taken away from their fields. They were taken away from their flocks. Wives and children were left helpless at their homes in Goshen, while the men were taken to the borders to build these cities. It seems that the Egyptians were actually seeking to break the health of these men under the bitter work that was given to them. Next time, we'll see Pharaoh's goal of population control. He wants to stop the multiplication of the Israelites. And one of the ways of doing that was by separating these men from their wives, putting them up in in these border cities, and then forcing them to spend their lives in hard work. Well, 
behind Pharaoh's plans, there is another force at work. And we will bring this to our attention again and again as we study these chapters. The devil was fully aware that God had promised a Messiah to come. That God had promised one who would crush the serpent. And the devil was fully aware that the promised Messiah was to come from an Israelite, from a descendant of Jacob. And behind the suffering of Israel in this passage, and behind the attempts at population control and the genocide that we're going to see next time, is the devil's attempt to save his own neck. The devil is declaring war against Israel in order to prevent the coming of the Messiah. But notice the power of God. Notice the blessing of God on Israel, even in the midst of their slavery and suffering. Notice God's faithfulness to His promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that their descendants would number more than the stars in the sky. We are told the more the people were oppressed, the more God calls them to multiply. Dear friends, this was nothing more than miraculous. There is no reason why the numbers of the Israelites should not have begun to plateau or even to decline. But God intervened. He made Israel unusually fruitful. God opposed the plans of the Pharaoh and He he thwarted them. Here in these early days of the people of Israel, we see a principle that comes into play again and again and again in the history of the world. And it's this. It is often in the times when God's people are most oppressed that they multiply the most. It is often when God's people are oppressed the most that they multiply the most. Sometimes this happens because of the witness of martyrs You remember Tertullian's statement that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? And as people see Christians being oppressed, being persecuted, being willing to lay down their lives and die rather than turn from their faith, it causes more people to want to know this Savior who is worth so much. Here in our passage, there is no sense that the people of Israel are growing because Egyptians are coming to be a part of them. This was not missionary growth here in Exodus 1. In fact, Egyptian culture was probably affecting the Israelites. Many of these Israelites were likely not even true to the the true God anymore, the God of their father Abraham. But the growth that we see in this chapter is the growth of families, growth through childbearing, and it can only be explained as a supernatural work of God to display that He is sovereign and not Pharaoh. Mount Hermon, this will be the overarching theme of all the chapters we will study in the coming weeks and months. In passage after passage after passage, we will see God revealing to His people and God revealing to the Egyptians and God revealing to the world that He is God and that Pharaoh is no God at all. Indeed, God is going to show that He is God and He is sovereign over every God that the Egyptians claim to have. Pharaoh wants to do all that he can to keep God's people under his thumb. God is going to show that Pharaoh is under his thumb. Nothing is going to happen outside of the sovereign will of God. 
And even the hostility of the Egyptians toward the Israelites is actually a part of God's good plan. Psalm 105, beginning in verse 24, And the Lord made His people very fruitful, made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate His people, to deal craftily with His servants. Psalm 104, verse 25 says explicitly, It was God that turned the hearts of the Egyptians against His people. Why would God turn the hearts of the Egyptians against His people? Because He has a plan for the glory of His name and the good of His people. There is only one true sovereign king in this story, and it's not Pharaoh. Now I wonder if there's anyone here this morning seeking to oppose the true God. Could it be that any of us in this room are exalting ourselves above God in our lives? Pharaoh was caught up in his power. Pharaoh was caught up in his pride. How about you? Are you choosing to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think? Remember Paul said that these passages were written down for our benefit. And then Paul explicitly said that these passages were meant to warn us against pride. And so I'm warning you from this passage about pride. Do you see pride in your life? Do you find yourself committing presumptuous sins where you know what you're doing is wrong, but you do it anyway thinking, well, God's not going to do anything to me. Surely God won't won't punish me. Surely God won't turn away from, from me. Are you exalting yourself against God? Well, dear friend, if you are, you will learn the same lesson of Pharaoh, which is you cannot win this battle. You cannot win. God resists the proud, but He not only resists the proud, we're told He opposes the proud. He works against them. He actively works to thwart them. You should not expect to see your plans blessed by God if you are living in pride and known sin. It should come as no surprise to you when your efforts in your home your efforts in your work, your efforts in your relationships, your efforts in other parts of your life, when they become unfruitful, it should not surprise you if you are living in pride and in known sin against God. God has every reason to oppose you when you are living in pride. And frankly, God is being merciful to you. If God is opposing your plans, if He is frustrating your plans, if God is making your life difficult, it is mercy. He is giving you a reason to wake up and to see your pride and to humble yourself and to bend your knees and to repent. God would be just to just let our plans continue on fruitfully as we walk in pride only to have us condemned on the last day. But in His grace, He frustrates the plans of the proud now to get their attention. To say before it's too late, I am the true God. Humble yourself before Me. Dear friend, do not be like Pharaoh. Do not presume that anything is really under your control. You and everything else are under God's control. And those who humble themselves like little children and depend on Him will find that He is a loving and He is a tender Father. 
But those who seek to steal his sovereignty, those who seek to live presumptuously in known sin, will find that God is a mighty warrior and you will be defeated and your end will be worse than that of being drowned in the Red Sea. Friends, God has provided Jesus Christ for us as a place of refuge. Jesus is our way of peace with God. But we must turn from our sins and we must bow our knee to the holy, holy, holy God who upholds all things by the power of His hands. And if we refuse to submit to the one true God, we have no hope. And so let us all humble our hearts before Him. Let us bend our knees before Him. And let us love the God who blesses His people even when they are under attack. Because He does. Let's pray.